welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. We are 62 days away from the inauguration and welcome to the coup phase of the Trump administration as Masha Gessen has called it so well. What can I say? This is going mm, very badly. I guess that's the nicest thing I could say. When Joe Biden said he wanted to save the soul of America, I had no idea he meant that he was saving his neoliberal capitalist soul. Well, he has wasted no time since Election Day screwing to the right. At the same time, Donald Trump and his shrinking cadre of cronies are holed up in their bunker, brazenly plotting to destroy the democracy and overturn the election overturn the election. That may sound needlessly conspiratorial, but this isn't what I think. It is what they actually announced. Now, fascism always, always comes with comic distraction. And Trump is fortunate to have his very own court jester, Rudy Giuliani, to do just that. But the press is so busy laughing as Rudy's hair dye runs down his face that they aren't listening hard enough to what the actual Trump legal, legal team here is saying. And I put that in quotes because it's legal, questionably legal. Here is what one of Trump's other lawyers, not Giuliani, but Sidney Powell said on Fox Business. Let's roll that video. The, the president's path to victory here as you and the legal team see it. Uh, if you could give us uh, just that, uh, that canvas very quickly. Well, yes, Lou. The entire election, frankly, in all the swing states should be overturned and the legislatures should make sure that the electors are selected for Trump and it's going to have to follow the constitutional provisions that it go be decided. First off, um, I don't like that I'm wearing the same shirt she's wearing, so let's get that out of our minds. But this is outrageous. Make no mistake, she meant this. Trump is meeting this afternoon at the White House with four Republican leaders of the Michigan legislature. This is no longer funny for any of you who thought it was funny. This is a brazen effort to pressure public officials into subverting the election. The corporate media minimizes this by saying there is no way Trump can pull this off across several states, but we need to make sure that's true. The corporate media says a lot of things that don't end up accurate. Ahem, the polls, 2016 election, down ballot races, the blue wave, et cetera, et cetera. But stopping Trump from stealing the election may be missing a bigger point. Trump and his mad crew are embedded deep in the minds of cons conservative voters with a new conspiracy theory. There's a new one every day. But this theory is so wacky that none of us of sound mind take it seriously. Sound mind is the key operative word. And therefore, we may not be paying full attention. The conspiracy that Rudy Giuliani and the others have laid out involves the Democrats paying a voting tabulation machine manufacturer to flip the vote count. And then when that didn't completely reverse the election, they then sent in thousands of fraudulent mail-in ballots to, I don't know, it's so confusing. It's all over the place. Oh, and then there's something about Hugo, Hugo Chavez, because he has something to do with this whole thing, even though he's been dead for seven years. Tim Miller, a never-Trumper, explained the danger this way, quote, Unconstrained by having to present any evidence at all, the Giuliani gang concocts a conspiracy that sounds manifestly true to voters who have been trained to believe that the left is, the, is evil incarnate, but sounds so preposterous to everyone else that Republican elected officials can avoid engaging on the merits while they accuse the media of being mean to them for asking about it and mocking liberals for panicking over the subversion of our democracy. As I said, this is not funny, this is dangerous. But instead of force, forcefully standing up to this charade, the Democrats are busy planning their new government. Neoliberalism is back from the dead after it was proven once again to be flawed. It is almost as if Trump's madness is creating cover for the Biden team to move steadily to the right or to the middle as they like to say. Did Kamala Harris really need to give Lindsey Graham a fist pump? What is it about the California senators and crony capitalism and Lindsey Graham? Turns out when Dianne Feinstein hugged Lindsey Graham, she was just illustrating the ethos of go along, get along California politics. 
we would be in the streets. Let's just be very clear. We would be in the streets if Trump were doing these things that Biden and Harris are doing to help hot bosses of the Labor Department or chemical companies at the EPA. We were in the streets when Trump was making these moves in 2017. But we need to be in the streets again and anywhere else to make ourselves heard. Team, comrades, family, we have a two-front war right now. Trump is laying the groundwork for a new rabid right motivated to win back the election. They firmly know the Democrats stole from them. <laughs> they think, I should say. And the Democrats already seem to have forgotten the message of pain and suffering and this economic crisis and COVID delivered clearly in this election that Biden did just win. They've already forgotten it and are already handing over the government to business and, of course, neoliberal interests. This needs to stop. Now, we have a great show for you today. It is Fem Friday. First up, we have the one and only Rosa Clemente. And then we talk about climate with Julia Rock and our very own Piper Winkler. And then we have a little something extra. We talk about some police intimidation that is happening at government meetings in New York State with Solange Hansen. If you guys are not already doing so, make sure to smash that like button and hit that bell either up here or down there, depending on what device you're on, I've learned in the last few days. Uh, that bell will tell you when we go live, when we have special interviews, when we have breaking news. And of course, if you are not already a member of, of our Patreon community, please join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Like I always say, our Patreon community is what makes this show happen. And the stronger we grow, the more we, we are able to push back against corporate media and we can grow this show even more so. We have a great show. Stick around. We'll be right back with the one and only Rosa Clemente. Show. I am so excited about our next guest for Fun Friday. We have Rosa Clemente. She was the 2008 vice presidential candidate for the Green Party. What has to this day been the only full ticket with Cynthia McKinney of Two Women of Color. And of course, uh, she's an amazing activist and writer and journalist and uh, you're an amazing activist when it comes to the independence movement of Puerto Rico. And I, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that. So here we go. There was a statehood vote again <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. I think our audience, if you don't already know, we've talked about statehood on the show before. But uh, what I found fascinating about that vote, looking, uh, looking at it a little bit more closely, was that the independence movement has gained steam at a time when, you know, it seems like like the normie Democrats or, you know, and even Robert Reich is calling for statehood, not necessarily understanding the complexities and 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 really, what it would take to get get the island there, but also, you know, wouldn't it be great if like the island could decide for themselves? So, what what do you what's your take on uh, the performance of the independence movement? Well, I mean, the election that we just had in Puerto Rico actually would put in a lot of younger progressives into. Um, you know, our our form of government and as well as elected the first black Puerto Rican lesbian um, as well. What happens with these plebiscites is um, the people of Puerto Rico don't go out. They sit out the plebiscite because we've had so many of them and they absolutely mean nothing. And um, this year there was a lot of money like the last one before put towards statehood, right? But what it is, is the general voting pattern of Puerto Ricans is in the high 90s. Um, but we've had the hurricane, then the um, coronavirus, but still a lot of people um, came to vote. And actually right now there's a major recount happening. And I'm sorry about that. Um, there's a major recount happening. I was watching some footage last night and, you know, the recount, I mean, like, people were throwing hands at each other. Like there was people trying to take that they didn't know votes and put them somewhere else. And there's, there's a lot of corruption in, in, in the Puerto Rican government than you coupled with colonialism. But within all that, you know, there has been this whole now, particularly like white liberals, like, yeah, Puerto Rico, they could be a state. Well, the only reason they want it is for our votes. I make it very clear, Puerto Rico will never be a state. I never say anything definitively like that. It will never happen. No fantasy of Democrats wanting 5.6 million Puerto Rican votes here. There's more Puerto Ricans in the United States than they are 
in Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, you can't vote um, for the for the president. And really, the mindset in Puerto Rico right now is one of self-determination and independence. And the, the two parties that usually go back and forth were also, you can see the numbers came down. And when you talk to a lot of younger Puerto Ricans, they're like, we don't want any party to exist. We're on a path to um, undo colonialism and try to get this in front of the United Nations so we can achieve some type of independence, which a transition would take very long anyway, you know, but that, that whole, you know, people just finding out that Puerto Ricans are important. I found it interesting because if you look at Pennsylvania, there's over 400,000 Puerto Ricans there. Nobody talked about them being a potential swing. Let's look at Florida. Well, everybody was caught up and the Republicans did all their scare media tactics about socialism and communism, um, targeting a very old white Cuban community that's still mad about Fidel Castro and the revolution that they didn't focus on 1.4 million people that are Puerto Ricans. They could have flipped the state. And I'm not a Democrat. I'm just saying that like politically, you could have flipped the state of Florida really quickly because 84% of the Puerto Ricans in Florida that voted did vote for Biden and Harris. So, um, and- And and, and that's interesting because just just, just to touch on that, what I find so fascinating, you mentioned it sort of casually, but it's a huge deal. The island, is extremely politically active. Yes. 90% of the island turns out and votes. There, it's a highly educated island. I think there's like more lawyers in Puerto Rico than like any other state in America, which is, you know, look at New York. I mean, that's pretty mind boggling. Um, it is a very civically active island. And, and, and with that, there aren't a traditional two party system. So when you say things like the youth don't find the two parties um, any interest in them, it's not just Democrats versus Republicans, which is a, you know, a mainland thing. Yeah. It's, it's the, the parties in the island, which were really defined around whether or not they support statehood or not, or what the path to, uh, for, for the island is. A, a, a conversation. Or the, yeah. Go, or, go or the Commonwealth status. So the, exactly. there's, there's the progressive people's um, party, which is not that progressive. Then you have the independistas. Um, and th- there's a lot of issues around there of race and gender um, that has really n- not allowed young people to like fully um, come as themselves into the independista movement. I mean, it's a bunch of mostly Sounds like old. Socialism. Yeah, like, it's, like, the so, same, it's, it's the same tale like, <laughs> like old white men are still running it. And, um, yeah. you know, it is um, in Puerto Rico, voting is, is man. It's like if you don't go vote, people in your neighborhood would be like, why are you here? It's a day off, you know, like people take it seriously. And that's why I look at Florida. I look at Pennsylvania. I look at Minneapolis. There are Puerto Ricans everywhere in this country, but in some type of numbers. And this is true for the Dominican community in Rhode Island. Those are the swing voters, you know, not the working class, which you're really trying to get white men back from Trump. I don't know why, you know, but that I was like, I can't believe no one went to Florida. Like Biden and Harris went and met with the Cubans. Oh, you, I mean, I'm sorry, like, Luis Fonzi didn't turn the... No. <laughs> No, that button didn't come out. Yeah, uh, despacito. Uh, <laughs> no. well, that would have been. That would have. The thing is, that would have worked if they had just been like, "Well, let's pay some attention and understand this this five point six million voting block." That, of course, is not a monolith, but is surely more on the progressive side of things. So let's talk a little bit about the establishment, the mainland establishments. Um, ties to the island when it comes to uh, what Naomi Klein coined as disaster capitalism and and the, the financial interests that already existed, you know, w- with the economic crisis there. I mean, they've existed forever. I shouldn't say that. Um, there were pharmaceutical companies coming into the island. I'll, I'll, there's a great history of, of true colonialism um, since forever, uh, since Columbus arrived, right? But I think what I find so fascinating about this moment intertwined with the statehood conversation in the Democratic Party is how many officers of the Democratic Party have vested interests in they either represent uh, financial ties or real estate companies that are are really taking advantage of the island at its most vulnerable point, you know, after financial collapse, after uh, Hurricane Maria, now with COVID, 
mm-hmm. um, there, are, there just seem to be these vultures that are swooping in and they're connected to the Democratic Party too. Yeah, I mean, it, it really, uh, we were already facing a, a high debt because of the um, the economy falling in 2008. You know, that what happened here also happened there in Puerto Rico. Um, Puerto Rico in general, in any statistic, if Mississippi is the 50th and we were a state, we'd be 51. The average Puerto Rican makes poverty, right? poverty makes $18,000 a year. Okay, so there were already a lot of issues. And then um, when Barack Obama um, signed the PROMESA bill, which um, promised paying the debt or that the debt would also go to bondholders, even though there were Puerto Ricans, um, many of my comrades that, you know, talked to the Democrats, talked to Nidia Velasquez, talked to so many um, Democrats. Congressman, uh, Congresswoman. Oh, independence. Yeah, right. she, now she is. I think that's a little bit of the AOC effect. And AOC wasn't in there. I'm sure she would have fought that hard. Um, but it also was boistered at that time by Lin-Manuel Miranda's father, who uh, obviously everybody knows Lynn through Hamilton, but his father has been a really big power broker in New York around the Democratic Party and the Hispanic Federation. They testified on behalf of PROMESA. So then here comes the the hurricane and then this ballooning of the debt. And what it is, is that there are people that are making the decisions, much like in Flint and some other places where um, a mayor does not make the budget or it, it's, it's a different uh, group of people. That's what's happening. And so anything that Puerto Rico makes goes right to the debt. And there are seven people, mostly all in New York, lawyers who sit and make those decisions. And one of them was to close over 200 schools in less than three years. The person who did that is a close friend of Betsy DeVos. Six months ago, her and 30 people from the education committee got (laughs) arrested by the FBI because they were taking all the money that was supposed to go to the schools, keeping it and shutting schools down. So in Puerto Rico right now, we're in a critical juncture if we can maintain the island as an island for Puerto Ricans, because now we also have the bit currency, like, you know, Let's What's his name that ran for president? Uh, Brock. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's get that a second. Cause I, yeah. I, but I want to touch a little bit more on the education stuff because um, when I was, was a reporter on the Island in 2018, sorry, I have to do the math, 17, 18, after the storm, yeah. uh, I interviewed uh, the secretary of education on the Island who let's just be, speaks fluent Spanish, um, but she's from Pennsylvania and she's a white woman. And, and, and there were, there was just such an, there were there was a lot of pushback against her publicly um, with the press. She was very closed off from folks. And I sat down and I interviewed her and she stormed off in the middle of the interview when I asked her very basic questions like, how is the solution to education crisis to shut down 200 schools on an island that's, you know, it's, it's larger than Long Island and a lot of it's rural. And so if you're, if you live in Utuado, for instance, or like in the mountains somewhere and you can't, your child has to go two and a half hours to school every day because they're shut down schools. Mm -hmm. How is that solving the problem? And, um, and it was just really fascinating to see her, her perspective on it, but she was, let's also be very clear. This is, she is a Betsy DeVos ally but she also was an ally of the governor who aligns with the Democratic Party, who's no right. longer there, right? Also yeah. booted out. Well, Rosa Joe aligned with the Republican Party. If he was in a line, if there was- um, I mean, on the, on the mainland. On, on the, the mainland, mainland. yeah. He yeah. like cozied up to Tom Perez. To Trump and yeah. yeah. But I mean, he did with both, yeah. But he was corrupt and which is why we had the protests um, that forced him to resign. And then now you see all the scandals. Um, and unfortunately, Puerto Ricans are used to that. But what's been happening on the island is just like young people are just now, first, they're pushing back on this dude, Bro- Brock Turner, right? Brock is that his, so Brock, Brock Pierce. Pierce. I don't, oh, I just God. know. He ran for, I didn't even know he was on the ballot, honestly. I'm so, he ran for president. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so wait, wait, let's yeah, this Another is, th- part of my reporting that was like really yeah. fascinating. And I will release this on our channel. Um, <laughs> it never aired at TYT. Oh, you uh, should. But, I will. I was embedded with them for 
for like, I don't know, like a week or something because they thought that they were going to win over the TYT audience into, cause they're like cool and they like meditate and they, you know, do yoga on the beach and like, you know, they like have sushi parties and they wear like crazy. I mean, it was the, um, what's that festival in Nevada that everybody goes to the burning, Man. Oh, burning, the burning man. man crew. Yeah. They're, like actually part of the organizers yeah. were, were part of it, but they were, um, they went down there. These are Bitcoin guys. And, and okay. So that's this, I'll set the stage with that, that I, I will release that someday, but tell everybody what they've been doing on this. It's maddening. I mean, yeah. So what it is, is that as an American citizen, you could have an address in Puerto Rico and try to show you live there 151 days out of 356 and you don't have to pay federal taxes. Right. So now with the cryptocurrency, what what they did is basically a bunch of white dudes created what they thought would be their own city. Um, Naomi Klein brilliantly discusses this called Protopia. And it was going to be in between Isla Verde and Old San Juan, which is Santuice, which is the heart of part of our African descendant community. But it's a very um, much part of the socialist and art- artistic um, people of Puerto Rico. Um, you know, and he he's he continues to get run out. And actually, the day before voting, this is how I uh, hear the election here. I was watching one of my friends and he's like, that's him, Brock Pierce. We're about to roll up on him. And I I'm like, why? I mean, I, why is he in New York City? What's that? And he's like, he's on the ballot. I'm like, what ballot? Like, I didn't even know. But the, of course, map Puerto Ricans were like shaming him, you know. But unfortunately, because of austerity measures, because there hasn't been a full audit of the debt, because there's so much corruption, this is a type of opportunities that people like him will take. There are people going down there just taking land yeah. because our people... This is a very Caribbean thing um, in our communities. We don't necessarily remember deeds or get deeds. And post a hurricane, right, right, right. people lost everything. So the banks are like, if you don't show your deed, you don't own the house. You could prove you've been living there 60, 70 years. And that happened to my family, which is why my uncle went down there right before the hurricane to stay in our family house and is still there because the banks come, people are coming with cash. Unfortunately, so many businesses have closed. I mean, if somebody... Yeah you're suffering somebody's like here's seventy five thousand dollars and tickets to florida which is now the hub of migration for puerto ricans because no puerto ricans going to mostly go to chicago new york because of rent so and florida keeps you very closer to the island you know so it's a lot but yeah with the deeds just to touch on that because i i just to put more context into it so folks will inherit their family property right and they're they never you know, their grandparents don't sign over a deed and so if you some folks would talk about how the deeds were from like 1922 and you know their grandparents their great-grandparents were no longer alive and so there, it was like this limbo land where they couldn't protect their own property because of 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 the the way that um you know, they were, they were keeping records essentially. Yeah. Is that, is, is that, that's fair enough? No, that's a, that's exactly um, what happened. I mean, that's what happened in my family. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the norm. And the flip side of all of this is that there is now such an incredible intergenerational movement that first is a conscious movement. And one thing that Hurricane Maria brought to light was anytime I would go to the island, I talk about independence with people, they'd be like, no, what would we do without the federal government? What would we do without the United States? Well, when Donald Trump threw paper towels, we exactly knew what we could do for ourselves. So the hurricane changed the consciousness of people who were like statehooders or commonwealth in like a week, like, no, do for self. It's so funny you mentioned Utuado because when I went down there with the crew I put together, we went to Utuado first, Mm. you know, and the people there were like, we're not leaving. We don't care if there's one slab of concrete. We are not going anywhere. But then you have now younger people that were born and raised here in, in, in the United States who are repatriating back to Puerto Rico, building farms, 
and using renewable energy energy because it's an island we could be the first kind of like representation of what does it look like to be 100 renewable energy sources we're an island the sad part right now is because of climate catastrophe we've had earthquakes in puerto rico um so yeah, that's, this and that's that's not something that's common right Oh, it's not. No, I mean, and we talk. I'm not talking about one earthquake. There's been 13 recorded earthquakes. The electrical grid still, whoever keeps changing what business, it stays corrupt. So there's rolling blackouts. Right. But you know, like compared to not seeing folks here really dig deep into like, are you really going to think Biden and Harris are going to change anything where everybody's just kind of like, oh, you cool party, the Dems won. In Puerto Rico, they're like top to bottom changing all of that um, and doing and mutual aid, self-determination, farming, and taking over the schools, rebuilding the schools, going to, to, to the university and be like, I'm not even paying tuition. Period. Oh yeah, this this is amazing. I mean, yeah. there's always so, been extraordinary activism on the island, but like because it's been ignored so much, and the crisis is so intensified, so, so much bigger than like we can even imagine in the mainland in January, February, when everyone's facing mass evictions. I mean, it's every it's every man for himself, which actually turns into a community thing, mutual yes. support. I think that the aspect of the farms. I went to a few of these farms. Um, really amazing farms where, like you said, people who came back or were young folks, young parents on the island that moved from San Juan into a farm. The aspect of that that's really fascinating is um, when, because of colonial interests and, and the Jones Act too, you know, everything is very expensive on the island. It's like the cost of New York City, but on an island because yeah. you're taxed on both ends, importing and exporting, right? But the farmland, I mean, there should be this thriving, uh, you know, coffee, bananas, but but the colonial, um, in the I think it was like the early, the early 1900s, if I if I'm correct, if I recall, you correct me if I'm wrong. They swiped yeah. in and they just ruined all the farms. So Puerto Ricans were dependent on importing, right? And it's it's horrifying because the the remaining farms are just a remnant of what existed. So it's beautiful to see young people coming back and nurturing the land, and and really investing in in their homeland. Yeah, and part of it, too, is obviously we should be able to eat the food we grow. But because we've lost so many doctors because of um, the United States government not reimbursing Puerto Rico for Medicaid payments for years now, um, there a lot of these young people are becoming healers as well. And, you know, I think that's very important in these times of technology and that what actually ends up to be a revolution or healing is land land, being able to feed yourself, being able to use um, our indigenous, our African, our our healing powers, um, because some residents are, could be 80 miles outside of a hospital, because so many hospitals have closed. So, you know, I think what we're seeing in Puerto Rico, you know, I would like to see that kind of replicated here in the U.S., as opposed to depending on Biden and Harris, who have just shown what, and you did an excellent um, uh, Tate, you know, just broke it down. But Cedric Richmond, he's a disgraced congressman. I don't under, I mean, really, like, y- you're going to talk to Larry Summers? Uh, and like, is this, or, and look, again, I am not a two-party person, people. I endorse Bernie, you know, like, that, that was a, ver- I, I endorse Bernie and I voted green. All I'm saying is like, they're already saying, we don't care what y'all want. Mm-hmm. Okay, young people, thank you, Black women, for 92% of you voting. That's why we won. Thank you, young people. Thank you, Bernie, young folks. Literally, like with, like you said, less than one week, this is the shit show already. Oh, sorry. They're not even, no, they're not even faking so it. They're not yeah. even faking it. Yeah. That's what's I really that's apologize what's for so- that. Oh, don't worry. Yeah, it's it's so I'm really glad you're breaking it down every day. I've been watching the show and it's just I mean, you make it that is so understandable and relatable because part of what they're going to do as any administration is also have a little confusion by throwing in like a progressive here and there where we're like, oh, I know they're good, but you can't be good. And then 800 bad. Like, where's (laughs) right. It's not like going to balance it out. You're right. I mean, that's that's ultimately it. Even if you have a labor secretary that's progressive, yeah, 
you're still operating within the rules and the confines of an administration that has, I mean, the majority of the administration is made up of corporate interests that are adverse to labor. I mean, look at the transition teams, all gig economy people. I mean, gig economy people that we were protesting like a minute ago and now we're suddenly, it's okay. We got, yeah. we got, we got Uber, we got Facebook because Larry Summers and Sheryl Sandberg are our besties. So even though Facebook delivered us Trump. Yeah. And you know, I, I also, I, I found another reason to fall in love with AOC when she was very clear last week on the, at the New York times, like, I don't know if I could be in this too much longer. And you're like, girl, you've been in there two years, you know, like this is, you know, the difference of running, being elected, and then actually governing. And although they have this great name, the squad, what that really means is those four sisters, and I would put Katie Porter up in there yeah, too. I mean, she's I destroying it during Harry hearing. They're the five that have now been marginalized by the so-called progressives in the party, right? Mm -hmm. So for an AOC to be like, mm, might this might not be what I thought it could be. I think will be very interesting to see what she does next because I know she's in there fighting, but you know, come on, we know what the Democratic Party is about. And we saw how they treated them during the campaign. You didn't bring them out ever. You just sidelined them. They're the reason that young people are even having any semblance of hope in the electoral politics of, of our country. You know, so I, I'm thinking of that. I want to know your take one day. I'll, you'll say it on the show. <laughs> I'll, I'll save that for one Your of my analysis. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. No, it's, 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 it's real. I mean, they're my concern with, with constantly um, turning our, our heroes into heroes, like with a capital H is we say things like go run against Schumer and they're thinking, Oh, that's a great opportunity for us to get rid of her. Cause she can get out of Congress right. and then we can play our games that we do with everybody. And you know, humor can stay in power or whoever. So we always have to be very careful about that stuff because they're thinking 55 steps ahead of us. Yeah. And we are a movement that's just trying to catch up with the pace of society and organize. But you've been doing this forever. Rosa Clemente, I am so grateful to have you on the show. We'd love to have you back on. It seems anytime. like everyone's loving you too. So No, I mean, anytime. I, I, I'm so glad you did this and then gave me the impetus to try to, try to start my own. But in no way um, can I break this analytically down the way you do. Oh, okay. um, and I, I appreciate that and to your audience. And I'm signing up right now to make sure I'm a Patreon, right? No, That's what I call my myself. God. Yeah. <laughs> And thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. That's what I do. I, cause I, cause I, I, we need, we need truth tellers and we need, we need you. So thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. We will be right back with our amazing panel. It's Fem Friday. It's my, my favorite. Day week, I'm just going to say Fem Friday. We're going to talk about climate policy and the Biden administration, a little bit more about Cedric Richmond, because why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> we'll be right back after the break. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Femme Friday, the Nomi Key Show. I am so excited about our next panel. Julia Rock is a writer at the Daily Poster. She is also a contributing writer there. She's also written for The Guardian, The Appeal, The American Prospect, and many other outlets. She most recently wrote about the uh, climate angle of the Joe Biden transition team and appointments. And of course, we have Piper Winkler. She is the Harvard YDSA co-chair. Uh, she was a, an organizer for Harvard for Bernie, and she is one of our team members. She's one of our associate producers. Thanks for joining us, gals, I should say. <laughs> All right, you're both on mute, just as a heads up. Thanks so much for having me on. It's lovely to be part of this panel. <laughs> In front of the camera today. So. <clears throat> so much to, to break down here. Julia, let's start with you. Um, you've been reporting on these, these, these appointments, um, four appointments, I guess, uh, in relation to climate policy. I'll just start with this before we break down the bad part. Is there any, anything good, like a ray of sunshine, a ray of hope, an avenue of change that, 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 is, that we're missing through this mess? I, I didn't expect you to start with that question, um, but I think it's a good one. I do think that one uh, possible avenue of hope is that the Biden team is saying that their pick for Treasury Secretary is going to be someone 
who pleases everyone. And there's been a lot of good reporting on the potential that the treasury will have to kind of break up the fossil fuel industry essentially. Um, and so I think that actually is a really possible area of hope to have a progressive in that position. That's interesting. So, um, I mean, from their perspective, it's somebody who everyone would be happy about, but that's their perspective. <laughs> they, I'm sure they think a lot of people are progressive, <laughs> like comparatively to Cedric Richmond. Okay, sure. Uh, maybe it doesn't take as much oil and gas money. Uh, Piper, what, what's your take on, on, let's just specifically talk about climate right now. What's your take on, on the, the Biden administration, their campaigning on uh, getting off fossil fuels, transitioning off of them, to this this transition team? Yeah, I think, you know, it's really interesting to focus on the transition team that Biden has crafted. It's important to think about this because it shows us Biden's allegiances. Obviously, Biden went under a lot of pressure from Sunrise during the primary. Sunrise rightfully raised, you know, huge concerns about the policies that he was putting up, giving him an F minus the first time he gave them a climate plan saying, we deserve better. Um, it's you know, no mistake that we're talking about climate on Feminist Friday. It's an issue that affects women, particularly in terms of you know, the fact that um, homeless women, for example, are under a unique set of risks and those who are driven out of their communities because of climate change, you know, this will become an even bigger problem. So realizing you know, with all of these concerns in mind that Biden is choosing to answer this very specific moment by saying, you know, we're going to be advised by, by somebody who, for example, consults with BP. One of his, his advisors who's been with him since May is you know, consulting with BP. He wants Cedric Richmond giving him advice when um, you know, Cedric Richmond takes, as Julia wrote about really wonderfully, takes campaign donations um, from, the, from people who invest in, in fossil fuels. Um, and he's an ally of that industry. And uh, finally, the fact that seven out of his, uh, seven out of the 10 most air polluted tracks in the country are, are in his district. So I think it's a very clear message to people that have been pushing him left that he's not going to go there willingly and that he's going to surround himself with people who are very much you know, in the pockets of, of the fossil fuel industry. Julia, is there some sort of like hidden deal here that I'm missing? Because I, 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 I've been wallowing in this space for the last few days of just how grotesque are they? I mean, it's just, this is just absurd in terms of of the actions that are being highlighted and the movements push back against them and even the media recognizing that this is like almost just a, a few steps too far. But part of me is like, well, maybe it's just because it's a transition team. Maybe um, that's their way of just rewarding allies of theirs over the years. You know, the, the Biden industrial complexes, uh, allegiances and all the people who've propped him up over the years. Maybe this is just his like, you know, thank you so much for your service. Uh, we'll put you on this transition team. And, um, you know, and the real policies will come out of the administration. Is this, no. <laughs> that reading, um, I think for a couple of reasons, one of the first things that we highlighted in the story is that this is one of the first advisors Biden announced. And it was the first one who's going to specifically be working on climate policy. And it's not just that he'll be working on climate issues, he'll be the word I think was liaison with climate change activists and those precisely those activists he's probably expected to be working with called the appointment of a trail. Um, and what is that? What is that? A betrayal. A betrayal appointment. Of, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, but so I was thinking about this a little bit earlier, and I think you know it's possible to see one reading as a lot of these groups are demanding that there are no appointments who are directly from the fossil fuel industry. So no executives or lobbyists or people who have consulted on behalf of that industry. I think Piper just was talking about Ernest Moniz and he's a good example of that. And so I'm kind of wondering if there's a way in which they thought they could get around that by just appointing someone whose pockets have been lined by that industry, whose campaign pockets have been lined by that industry, but doesn't actually directly work for the industry. But I don't, I don't really think there's any actually generous reading of it. Um, and I think it's, again, especially the fact that he was one of the first advisors to be named, that he's going to be working with these activists and that they are so betrayed by the pick. It's really hard to see a way around that. This may sound ridiculous, but does Cedric Richmond believe in climate change? <laughs> I, mean, I'm, I mean, if you're taking that much money and you're a Democrat I, at this moment, I, I'm, I'm saying this in all honesty, does he believe, has anybody ever asked him? 
I, I don't know that anybody's ever asked him that directly, um, although he has, you know, voted on certain pieces of legislation that suggest that he probably does. One thing um, that is really interesting that's been back in the news this week is the Keystone XL pipeline, which um, there's just been a new agreement between some groups to try to get it pushed again. And he was one of the few Democrats who voted in favor of that pipeline. Um, and so to your question, there's, there's kind of saying you believe in climate change and then acting like you believe in climate change. And he's certainly walking a fine line. So Piper, you know, you are an activist in DSA and an organizer. I, the climate movement has been very successful on some very specific, um, items in terms of, of protesting and raising awareness and, uh, whether it's, it's, it's actually protesting the sites of, of, pipelines or potential pipelines like Dakota Access Pipeline um, or divesting, right? Do we have to alter our strategy? What do you think? Like in terms of dealing with administration that is just completely, it seems completely unreceptive to the existential threat that's like already on us, um, irreversibly on us. Do we have to change our strategy so that we're, we can go bigger for this moment? Yeah, that's a, a wonderful question. I think it's one that we really need to be asking in, in all circles that we're organizing in. I think there are some things that are being done wrong, um, and there's some things that we need to add to our strategy. I think Julie has brought up, uh, there's been really amazing organizing around um, the Keystone XL pipeline. This is fantastic. Uh, I think this people who are undertaking this work, which can be very dangerous, uh, need to be supported as much as possible. I also think that there are some trends, um, which is not so much in activist communities, but if people saying that, you know, taking individual actions, um, which often read as very moralistic, um, you know, choosing to use more, shop more sustainably, for example, or to go vegan, although as a vegetarian myself, you know, I certainly recognize that, you know, we can consume things more sustainably when it's possible, but I don't ultimately think that this is going to be what pushes things in the favor of, you know, a sustainable planet. It seems really obvious to me that, you know, as somebody who focuses on, on labor organizing and is really trying to learn more about it, as I think we all should, we should all be pushing the just transition understanding of, of Biden's climate plan, or sorry, not of, of Biden's climate plan, but of I, the climate plan that Biden should have. We should be thinking about how this becomes a workers issue too. And that only Biden is not going to listen to the, lover, the lovers of power that young people such as myself, he's not going to listen to, to us. I believe it'll take like organizing around the point of production, working with workers themselves who have the power to take away the money that goes into those pockets of, you know, the fossil fuel executives. That's what it's going to take to make a change. And I think that, you know, young people should continue to do the advocacy and the political education that they're doing, but it's going to take labor organizing to make the real difference. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately is, is you know, historically, when you look at movements that have been successful, um, revolutions, I guess, that have been successful and those who have died out, you know, there, there really has to be that two pronged uh, youth organizing arm and labor organizing arm simultaneously. Um, Julia, I mean, there, there is an argument to be made right now. I've heard it made by some climate activists that I truly respect that it really doesn't matter what they push forward when it comes to um, uh, moving off of oil and gas, it's just going to happen because the markets are already signaling it because they've been disrupted so much. Is, I, is that fair to say? I mean, the argument, if I express that. I mean, argument. yeah, I, I actually think that touches on really the point that Piper was getting at that, that maybe I could have mentioned in my earlier answer, which is that there are certain things, you know, we can expect from Biden and whoever he appoints to be his advisors, like he's committed to rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, he's committed to reinstating some of the EPA regulations that Trump has rolled back. And so there are these kind of baseline, you know, and, and then as you point out, things like wind and solar getting cheaper, you know, we can expect a slow movement towards that. So there's that type of climate policy. And then there's what Piper is talking about, which is something closer to a Green New Deal. Um, that is a much bigger set of policies that enacts a faster transition and a just transition. And I think that that seems to really be the question right now. You know, again, there, there are these baseline things we can expect from Biden. You know, he'll trust scientists maybe, or he'll rejoin climate, uh, Paris. But then everything on top of that, I think it is pretty up in the air and is why groups like Sunrise are so focused on these appointments because the people who have Biden's ear ultimately could have a big impact on whether those things happen. Uh, final thoughts before we wrap up. Piper? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I've mentioned the importance of thinking about this as an intersectional issue when that runs into issues of, of housing, racial justice, all of the following. There are things that Biden can be pushed on um, that relate to these, such as, for example, asking federal agencies to assess the risk of environmental harms in various communities, because, of, of course, you know, the harms of fossil fuels, fracking, et cetera, are also are often pushed onto low-income communities and communities of color the most. There's lots that Biden can do, regardless of what the Senate looks like, that relies on executive orders. So even though he's accusing you know, Sunrise and other organizers of harming goodwill of his new administration, he needs to be held to account. There's a lot that he can do. And I think that if people with the power to do so continue to, to share messaging and political occasion, uh, political um, education on what those things are, you know, it's possible that we can take that excuse of the Senate away from him and make him do what's right. Julia? Well, yeah, and, and to piggyback off of what Piper's saying about the Senate, um, kind of an additional point is that he can also make some of these cabinet appointments without the Senate. And there are groups who are talking about that. So he can, um, you know, appoint a Secretary of Energy who isn't appealing to McConnell using, I think it's the Vacancies Act or the Recess Appointments Act. And so, that, again, seems like a really key point. There's no need to get all the Republicans on board for this because Biden can act alone on a lot of these things. I'll add one note before we wrap up. My hot take is we can also use other agencies to push for climate change. Um, HUD is a perfect example in cities around the country. You know, the biggest cause of, of, of um, emissions comes from housing. That's a big issue in New York right now. So we have to think, um, you know, multi-layered. And it's just a shame that we have to do that because... Uh, Obama used to like to say that make me do it, but I think I don't think we really have a choice right now. <laughs> Just all right, Julia Rock, Piper Winkler, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure for Fem Friday. We will be back in just a second with our extra interview. It's a special Friday. Uh, Solange Hansen is going to be on to talk about police intimidation that's happening at New York Board of of, of Education meetings happening right now at government meetings. It's very bizarre. This stuff has been breaking in the last week. Some of the uh, the police unions pressure on on government officials to I don't know what, but we will find out. Nomi Show. Solange Hansen has worked for the National ACLU and, and, and AACP. She's a lawyer of 27 years. She's a mom of three, which is very relevant to this story. And really fun fact, which I, I want to nerd out with you on, is you were there representing the Democrats in the Florida recount of 2000. So you must be losing your mind right now about some other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that was really surreal to be, um, actually, I worked for the Service Employees International Union, and um, they sent all lawyers that worked right. for the union down to help out to be legal observers and other duties okay. in Florida. It was, it was crazy. <laughs> what part, what, where were you in Southern Florida? I was in Broward County, and, um, you know, really, we were there you know, to observe and, and count the votes and, and observe the recount. And I just felt like, oh, this is such a noble thing to do. Um, and that's when it hit me that there are people that did not want that. They, you know, there were crowds of people. They were violent. They were loud. I mean, violent in the sense of, you know, gathering around our buses and threatening us. And it was just it was absolutely surreal. And that was really my first introduction to massive protests uh, against what I felt was a democratic issue, a small d democratic issue. Small dummy, yeah. And this is, I mean, the Brooks Brothers riot was part of that, that sort of uh, Southern, Southern Florida strategy uh, to pressure and intimidate folks. Yeah, so kids, um, if you're watching, you don't know what we're talking about, go Google hanging chads and just, just, <laughs> just and, and the Brooks Brothers riot because it's a, uh, I mean, it was part of my political education. I was 16 at the time, and I remember my parents yelling at me for staying up every night until four in the morning, just like literally watching people on TV, like take a sheet of paper up and go. <laughs> exactly. It's hard to believe it's been 20 years, honestly. Yeah. And and here we are, you know, really moved into so the next changed. sort of hanging chad, but it isn't a recount that's going on right now. Really, they're talking about just, you know, certify the actual count and let's yeah. move on. 
which they have been doing, but uh, it does not stop the Giuliani legal team from saying overturn the entire election. I don't know cool. if you could really call that a legal team that he yeah. has. He has he has something. A legal team. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Solange. So um, I, I this is. I, I actually don't really understand everything that happened. I've heard multiple news stories, but you live in Pelham, New York. And mm-hmm. the reason why this really stood out to me, other than it just being bizarre, was it came the day after the New York Police Benevolence Association Union threatened the deputy leader of the New York State Senate on Twitter, saying he should be looking over his shoulder. We just did an interview with him. So guys, you're gonna wanna check that out. We're gonna post that um, in the next couple of days. but. This was the day after that, and 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 I heard that there was this meeting in which police were intimidating folks, including lawmakers. Can you can you tell us what happened? Well, in our town, this really actually isn't about supporting our police. Of course, we love our police. We have wonderful police. I see our police officers when I'm out walking our dog, and um, you know this is a small town, so everybody knows everybody, and it isn't about supporting the police. The issue is regarding um, the thin blue line flag. And that represents to to people of color and specifically me, a a black woman, that represents oppression and violence against African-Americans in our communities. It may not mean that to other people, but that's how we see it. And that's where the problem lies. There was a, a nice woman in our, our community whose father was fallen um, uh, in a violent act when she was two weeks old, and she prepared a sweatshirt to commemorate his death. I'm the kind of person, I buy everything. I would have bought that sweatshirt. Every, my kids would have had one. I would have had one. My mother would have had one. I probably would have sent some you know, back home to California, where I'm from, to you know, as, as holiday gifts. It, it has a police badge. It has her father's name. Unfortunately, she also included the thin blue line flag. If she had included the US flag, I mean, that thing would be selling even like hotcakes in my community. But she put a symbol of oppression on this jacket, on this sweatshirt, and that's where the problem is. In our schools, teachers and administrators really shouldn't have political positions where they're wearing- This is in the school, what happened, the controversy arose over teachers and administrators wearing the thin blue line flag on this sweatshirt. Um, right. And then it was looped into Black Lives Matter. And so they they decided to ban both, right? So interestingly, you don't hear any Black people com- complaining that they have banned Black Lives Matter. And the reason is, it looks okay to me, but I don't know how you feel about it. And in our schools, I'm very sensitive if you as a student feel this way about a symbol, then of course, whatever they want to wear outside of the school, that is their business. They can go along their merry way and and put on whatever. It's while you're in school. And as a mom, I don't want my, I want my kid to go into school and ask questions about like, how do I solve this algebraic, algebraic problem? You know, I don't understand the scientific, um, you know, um, formula. How do I do this? I want them asking those types of questions. I don't want them questioning the motives of teachers and faculty that are wearing political wear. That's really not the place for that to happen. It's also against the rules too, right? I mean, we I never knew growing up, like later I knew, but I never knew growing up whether or not my teachers swung one way or another. Right? I mean, yeah. that's right. Your, your teachers are just teachers and you assume, you know, you don't even think about those things. Um, and, and that's really how it should be. They should be there for all students, including students that's, whose parents may have you know, been in um, the police academy or, or, or law, law enforcement, including uh, children who um, may have experienced negative or positive with the police, including you know, kids that support Black Lives Matter. Like, that, that's really the place, that's the place where they go for their safe space and their education. And they're going to their teachers for that information, not to ascertain where they feel or to make them feel like they're supporting organizations and, and movements that oppress them. So this, uh, the Pelham decides that they're going to ban, um, you know, ban wearing this, which I think is already sort of the rule, the law to not express political opinions, right? But there was this meeting 
Um, can you explain what happened? That's really unfortunate. It had to be the coldest night of the, you know, so far that we've had. And our school board meetings are really, you know, they're really not really um, eventful. You know, parents will talk about, well, you know, I'm just concerned that we may be removing Latin from the curriculum or, you know, children aren't receiving the type of um, services that they need, especially if they have an IEP or a 504 plan. Like those are, that's the proper place for that type of discussion to happen. What happened is, is that a lot of New York City police officers and those who are supporting the New York City police came into our gymnasium. It can only have 35 people in it because of COVID. And so they took up most of the seats. That left the rest of the parents that had legitimate business and our residents here in Pelham that they needed to discuss. That really, I mean, it literally left them out in the cold. And that was really unfortunate. I, I sympathize. I'm totally supportive of our law enforcement. If it had been Pelham police, you know, that live here and had an opinion about something happening in our schools, right on, come and say it. That really wasn't the case. They were really there to offer support. And in doing so, they provided a, a, a atmosphere that was intimidating, particularly to parents of color that may have wanted to come up. You have to say where you live in our school board meetings. You have to get up and say, hi, my name is wow. and where I live. And so I think that was a huge deterrent for parents that wanted to speak out on this issue. They want to support the police, but you know they just don't want their children to be filled with these images that the children already know symbolize oppression and violence against them because of their color. So the folks were outside and they also refused and were, for from what I understand um, from other reports from people there, there's a senator named Alessandra Biagi who represents the oh, district. She's awesome. She, she's, um, she was part of that wave of the IDC, the anti-IDC. She ran against the leader of the IDC, uh, Senator Jeff Klein. And, and they wouldn't allow her in and the police were pushing her away and she is the local senator there to attend this well, meeting. So there is a 35 people restriction and that applies to, you know, our local officials um, that, you know, were in line as well. And that's really unfortunate because she actually lives here in Pelham <laughs> and she is, you know, a parent and, um, and somebody who has a voice in Pelham. So it was really unfortunate. She was able to issue a statement, but because, and, and the superintendent of schools asked, you know, if, if you, you know, have, if you could, we would like other people to be able to come in. So if you could leave, <laughs> and she wasn't saying to anybody in specific, but, you know, make room for the people who are outside in the cold. It was the coldest day. This was on, I think, Tuesday evening, and it was really cold. And so it was really unfortunate that she wasn't able to get in. I, I've, yeah, I think it's I don't know what their intentions are to, you know, maybe they didn't intend it that way. But honestly, if you fill the room <laughs> with New York, I can editorialize. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're tough. They're a tough effort. broad, you know, like they have to be tough, right? Well, they're outside in the cold. They had to intend it this way because first off, they, they, these were NYPD officers who may be may reside in other places, but there they're representing the NYPD, which is not Pelham, which is outside of New York City. Um, right. And they filled up an audience in a very politically heated, controversial topic. But this is where their energy is going right now. Their energy is going right? literally just shutting down any dissent, anything from being on the record right this now. This is supposed to be about her father and honoring yeah. her father. Yeah. And it is turned into some type of spectacle. You don't even think about the father, the poor father that perished in this situation. It's not about her father. If it were about her father, she would understand she would have a U.S. flag on that sweatshirt and we would be talking about how to plant a tree in a park in honor of her father and we're not talking about any of that we're talking about a symbol that that really represents violence against african americans and that has absolutely nothing to do with honoring her father and also belongs no place in public schools and That's right. the fact that they're willing to manipulate uh school board meetings by push importing uh officers in to intimidate this is this is to to, to prevent dissent that is it's that very is dangerous. really sad these are the mechanisms you know, is that how her father wants to be honored yeah. i i couldn't imagine any father would want that from their children Solange Hansen, thank you so much for joining us. It's I think thank this you. is a really important story like i know it sounds local but 
it is this kind of stuff is happening across the country right now. And because of the craziness of the news, of the, the, the vote challenges, of, of the protests, I mean, we're missing major, major things happening. Um, and these are all vehicles to suppress any sort of dissent, to intimidate, um, and, 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 and the police, of course, endorse Donald Trump. So, uh, thank you so much. I just got huge mom cred for being on your show. My kids (laughs) think I am a rock star now. Thank you. Thanks. Salon Jansen. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to everybody for you too. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Uh, we've got some shout outs to make. Uh, Salon, you're, you're, you're free to go. We have Dave Pigot, Pigot, I think. I apologize if I'm not saying it properly. Hi, Nomi. I'm starting a UK view of US and UK politics from a progressive lens. Love what you do. Thank you so much. Kowalski from Nebraska. Thank you, Kowalski. As a rancher, I know lab and plant-based meat substitutes are inevitable. We can use all that feed up land for carbon sequestration programs. Hashtag Green New Deal. I love that. That should be an ad right there. Uh, thank you so much to Professor Harvey K and all of the hashtag Nomi kids mixing up in the live chat. Who came up with that? <laughs> Special thanks to Midi Doctors uh, for handling our algorithmic needs and support. And of course, huge, huge, huge thank you to our moderators, Bob and Chokin, keeping those trolls out. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. We will see you on Tuesday. We have some special interviews going up this weekend, so make sure to check it out. Uh, we will release this interview with Senator Janaris, um, the deputy leader of the Senate, about his the threats that the PBA uh, made against him publicly. Crazy. And uh, we'll be talking about just the power that the police union has over New York City and New York State lawmakers, including the Democrats, and why things do not change. So you definitely want to check that out this weekend. Stay safe, be well, and we will see you on Tuesday.